So here's my question. If, if our brother Sammy, a Palestinian Christian who lives in a, a Muslim city today, Bethlehem is a Muslim city surrounded by Muslims. All of his neighbors are Muslims. He's surrounded by Muslims. He's feeling oppression from soldiers, the Jewish state around him. So he's, he's got like, he's got opponents all around him, right? This guy is hemmed in. If Sammy can move beyond just peace and move to a place of love, if he can move to this place of actual love for his enemies, do you think there's any chance for us in America maybe? If a man like Sammy can move past traditional enemies that, that he grew up with, traditional mortal enemies with a heart of love, can you learn to love your, your Democrat neighbor with the uh, Beto sign in his front yard? Can you learn to love your Republican neighbor with the stop the steal bumper sticker on his truck, right? Can the, the mom on Facebook yelling, keep the government's hands off my guns, yelling at the mom who's yelling, keep the government's hands off my body, can they ever authentically love each other? Can the thin blue line Christian and the Black Lives Matter Christian sitting in the same sanctuary learn to love each other the way Jesus loved others, the way he loved his disciples who drove him nuts sometimes, the way he loved enemies of the state, the way he loved sinners and prostitutes and, and tax collectors, the way he loved his executioners. Could we, can we, is there any hope for us to love like Jesus? At first glance, I'll just say it doesn't look like a whole lot of hope when you look at the world today. Um, 30 years ago, uh, even, even the world, just 30 years ago, even the world held out hope for, for peace between people, right? Uh, I remember growing up in the 70s, there was a commercial, many of you remember, right? I just want to buy the world a Coke. If I could buy the world a Coke, teach it harmony. That's all we need, man, right? We're just all children of Mother Earth, man. We just buy the world a Coke, maybe smoke something together, hug it out, right? That's all the world needs. Not so much anymore, right? The world has kind of even lost hope in that. Hugging it out with your enemy now is seen as capitulation. It's seen as compromise, weakness. It's seen as being unwoke. It's seen as being a rhino, depending on your tribe. In fact, it's more obvious than ever today that for there to be authentic peace and love between people who are different requires a change of heart, not just sharing a Coke. A change of heart. I think this is really the one silver lining behind this whole sort of toxic DEFCON 1 atmosphere of this election cycle, is that the truth is now finally becoming obvious that only an allegiance to a different kind of king can save us. Good ideas, hugging it out, isn't going to save us. Only allegiance to a different kind of king. We're living a perfect opportunity right now, guys, a perfect opportunity for kingdom people to put on display the miracle of their new birth, that we really are different, that we are able to rise above the, the venom and all the hate and all the idolatry and, and practice loving enemies. It's our opportunity to push back against the media's sort of us versus them narrative and show the world a better way, the way of enemy love.
enemy love. That's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, you can go over to Luke chapter 6. Oh man, that means we're going to read words of Jesus. And he's always so inconvenient to us, right? We have to read Jesus again. Here we go. Luke chapter 6. See, I've come to believe, I'm just telling you, I've come to believe that Christ's command to love our enemies is actually the most distinctive, most countercultural, most beautiful, most centrally defining aspect of the kingdom. It's, it's also the most challenging, frankly. It goes against a, a fundamental aspect of our fallen nature. Here's what Jesus says. He says this in Luke chapter 6, as part of the his sermon here. He says, but to you who are listening, okay, so we want to be listening, right? Because that's different than hearing. We want to be listening. I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And then he spells out what this looks like in concrete terms. Do good to those who hate you. Oh, bless those who curse you. Come on, man. Pray for those who mistreat you. Seriously. He goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. That's true. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Instead, he says, kingdom people, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. We're just going to take Jesus at his words this morning, okay? Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, I just ask you to anoint this message. Lord, be present here. Infuse it with your authority. Help us to trust in your kingdom. Build your kingdom inside of us, Lord. For everybody who's in the sanctuary, everybody who might be listening by podcast or live stream, whatever it is, just be present, open our hearts, open our ears to hear you, to receive your word in Jesus' name. I want to point out five things this morning um, about this passage that make it so beautiful, so radical, so countercultural, this enemy love that Jesus commands. And, and then we're going to finish up by talking about who Jesus says really is our enemy, okay? So get ready for that one. Okay, first of all, Note that Jesus doesn't say anywhere in here to love most of your enemies. He doesn't say some of your enemies. He doesn't say all but the really nasty ones. He says, love your enemies without any exceptions. Love your enemies without any exceptions. Same thing we find in the Gospel of Matthew. Same thing the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12. Love all your enemies. And there's never an exception clause to this. Isn't that interesting? Now, theologians... And preachers have for probably since the fifth century have really tried to go to enormous lengths to to, uh, try to make exceptions and qualifications for this. But biblically speaking, there's just none given here. He he just puts it out there. Love your enemies. And and the thing about this passage you got to know is this. If you're a first century Jewish person, you and I are sitting there on the hillside. We're listening to Jesus. This man, he seems so cool. He's just amazing. The wisdom that he's saying. If you're sitting there, as soon as he says the word enemy, you and I both are thinking the exact same person. First of all, it's the Romans. The Romans, they're the occupying force. They were the the second group of people you and I might be thinking about are the people from our tribe who collaborated with the Romans because they're the worst, right? The turncoats. 
So Romans conquered all of the Jewish lands. It's our, I mean, just imagine, that's us. Imagine, it's our home, right? Right here in Texas. The Romans conquered it, and they're here. They're in charge. They conquered it. They're oppressive. They ruled with tyranny. And, and the way they kept the peace was this. If there was a town or a city that started to kind of act up, caused them trouble, revolted in any way, the Romans would just ride into town, round up several totally innocent, random folks, and they'd go out to a hilltop and crucify them and leave them there for a few days just as a signal and you know just leave them there until they died as a signal like it was their way of saying do you really want to mess with us because if you mess with us this is what happens to you and your loved ones so the rule is oppressive it's tyrannical it's not just a difference of opinion I mean this is bad this is sinful it's unjust and yet Jesus says love your enemies love those kind of enemies so everybody sitting there would know who he's talking about. Most Jews in the first century, when they thought of the Romans, their attitude would have been the same as ours. It would have been like Americans have toward, you know, terrorists, um, because the Romans were terrorists. They ruled with terror. They ruled with fear. Except this is a terrorist group that won. They won. It would have been as if ISIS or Al-Qaeda or somebody had come in and actually invaded America and was now in charge. And here comes Jesus saying, love your enemies, love those kinds of enemies. So if the enemies that Jesus says we're to love and to do good and to bless, if they include groups like Romans and ISIS and traitors in their own midst, well, what group would that not include? That pretty much covers it all, doesn't it? There's nobody really left, uh, both the ones that threaten you and the ones uh, that we just don't like because, you know, they, they think differently than you. Jesus says, love them and do good to them. The second thing we see in the scripture is we have to admit there's no exceptions to this teaching because Jesus bases the teaching on the character of God. God doesn't have exceptions, and so that's why this love has no exceptions. He bases it on the character of God, not the character of our enemy. See, if he had based all of this on, because your enemy's really not that bad, if that's what he had said, because they're not really that, they're, what they're doing is not really that bad, then we'd be like, okay, but if they are that bad, then we don't have to love them. But no, he bases it on the character of God, so we're to love like this because this is how God loves. He's the kind of God who loves the ungrateful, and he loves the wicked. He's merciful to all, so we should also love all our enemies. We're to reflect this character in everything that we do. It's not based on the merits of the person in front of you. It's not based on their character. It's not based on their political platform or, or the comparative badness of this person to that person. Well, that person's bad, but they're like, you know, they're really bad. Did you see what they... It's based entirely on the fact that God loves like this. Over in Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus says, the Father causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the unrighteous, the wicked, and the righteous. That's how the Father loves indiscriminately, and he's painting us a picture. The Father loves like this, just like the sun shines on everybody. The Father loves everybody. It, the sun doesn't choose who gets warm today or, or how, you know, who gets the rain. It just does what it does, and so we're also to love like this, and so there can be no exceptions to this. Third note. Third thing is, and really this rocked my world when, when I kind of my eyes opened to this about 15 years ago. I'd probably read this passage a hundred times in my life and just didn't notice. And then one day you see it, you ever see something you can't unsee it? You know, it's one of those. Jesus says this in verse 35. He says, we're to love like this, to love your enemies, do good to those who abuse you, and then your reward will be great. 
then. And, and then you'll be the children of the Most High. And so what he's done here is he's made the defining mark, he's made this enemy love the defining mark of a kingdom person. He makes this enemy love the core trait of a child of God. Love like this, then you'll be a children of the Most High God. As God's children, uh, this is the primary way we resemble our Heavenly Father. You know, we like it when our kids kind of take something after us. Oh, he took that after you. Oh, he took that after you. You know, she, she looks like that. We love enemies the way God loves enemies. And thereby, when we do that, we turn foes into family. We turn enemies into family. When we reflect his character, we put on display the proof that we're one of God's children, that God has empowered us to love in a way that the world just can't. It, it's impossible for the world, but he's empowered us to do it because there is something different in our souls. So see, uh, what I hope is getting across here is that this isn't like an optional kind of a teaching. This isn't like some fringe doctrine, like here goes Scott on his hobby horse, you know, again. Uh, this is absolutely central. This is the central defining characteristic of a child of God. And I'm speaking to you as somebody who's not perfect at it either, right? But this is the central characteristic of a child of God. You getting it? The, the core defining characteristic of a child of God isn't just what you believe. The Bible says even the demons believe in Jesus. The demons could quote you, quote you all the scripture. Uh, your core defining mark as a child of God is that you love like him. You love like him. So Jesus, when he's arrested, Pilate asks him <clears throat> in John 18, he says, are you king of the Jews? He's getting interrogated and Pilate says, are you, are you, in other words, he's asking, are you a competitor? Should I be worried about you? Are you going to try to take my throne? And Jesus says, no, look, man, my, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, he said, well, you would know it because my servants, they would be beaten down the door. They'd be fighting to prevent my arrest. But as you can see, my kingdom is from another place. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about, the, about kingdoms, all the kingdoms of this world are predicated on a mistrust of God. From that moment, Israel decided, we don't really want to trust in God as king anymore. We, we need a man, and so they got Saul. They chose Saul, the good-looking guy, right? Ever since then, that's what the kingdoms of the world are predicated on. The kingdoms of the world have put their trust in a man. They put their trust in the sword, and they have to resort to violence to maintain law and order within, right? <clears throat> That's why police officers wear a gun and not a flower on their hip, right? Because that's how they maintain law and order. That's the only way they know. It, it, we, we use violence to maintain protection for our boundaries, to protect ourselves from invaders outside the boundaries. We use uh, violence even against political rivals. The, the truth is the only way, when you think about it, the only way to have a truly Christian nation is if that nation refused violence. If you had a nation that their foreign policy was to turn the other cheek and love all their enemies, how, how long would such a nation last, we might ask, in such a uh, world, a fallen world of evil people? It's why we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? Come quickly. Because it, it seems impossible. You can't really have that. It, but it's just a reality. All kingdoms today survive by relying on violence. It's a defining characteristic of nation states. Um, and so it's interesting how Jesus points to this fact that his followers aren't fighting as the proof that his kingdom is from another place. That's his proof. 
It's not that, well, my kingdom's from another place because my followers are so perfect. They're so sweet, and they don't ever do anything wrong. Now his proof is that they're not in here fighting for me. Isn't that interesting? That this is part of the kingdom of God. Now he could have added, I got this one uh, soldier, Peter, who's a little bit of a hothead. Um, he took out a sword. He tried to fight, but I rebuked him because that's not the way we do things around here in the kingdom. We love our enemies, refrain from violence. <clears throat> so this is the defining mark of a child of God. And this is the proof that you're a citizen of the kingdom that is not of this world. This right here is the proof. Fourth, fourth thing you could say of this, uh, of this beautiful scripture that Jesus told us, this sermon of his, is that Jesus clearly understands that what he's teaching is radical, that it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural. Jesus understands this. He doesn't assume everybody is just going to, this is going to be really easy to hear. It's not, he knows this is not what you, you're expecting. And he knows good and well you are not going to find this strange, that it's going to be unpopular even to others, and maybe even dangerous sounding to our neighbors and our government, right? Isn't it funny how antisocial uh, it's thought to be this loving? Get, people get nervous when you talk about being this loving. That sounds kind of antisocial, like nonviolence. That's like, doggone it, that's just downright unpatriotic, isn't it? Right? But in the world, even love is defined differently. Love is defined differently. The way people operate in the world when we talk about love is uh, that you love those who love you. You love people who love you. Jesus says in the world that love's kind of this uh, quid pro quo thing. You love those who love you. You don't like those who don't like you. You love because you're going to get something out of it. It's a very reciprocal kind of love. Love those who love you. Hate those who hate you. That's how the world works. <clears throat> Jesus says, look, if you love like that, what credit is that to you? There hasn't been, it, it doesn't show that there's been any like spiritual revolution in your, your heart. I mean, I mean, it might be a good step. I can finally love people who like me. Okay, great. But that doesn't show like your heart has been reborn. You are a new creation or anything like that, because that's just what the world does. We're no better than our enemies. That's not a sign of a new birth. We're just regular old worldly quid pro quo people, looking out for yourself, looking out for our own tribe, and making enemies of the other team. He says, you put on display the unique character of God and the unique love of God when your love goes beyond that. When you love people that the world would never love. When you love people that your own tribe would never love. And you're going to hear it from them. Amen? Some of you know what, what I'm talking about. When you love and there is nothing in it for you. In fact, when you love and it's going to cost you something. When you love and it's going to cost you something. When you love and it might cost you your life or it might cost you your membership in the tribe because you dared love the enemy. Now that puts on display the character of God. That's God's character right there. This kind of love is so radical. It's why Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And guys, our society is perishing. That message is foolishness. Because the cross is it's all about self-sacrificial love. It's, it's the ridiculous love of God. It's kind of absurd to our minds, right? Where Jesus would die while we were still enemies to the world that looks foolish and weak. What could be more 
weak and, and, and absurd than a God who becomes a human being and dies for enemies when he could have easily just crushed them. What a foolish, weak thing to do. But to us, Paul says, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, now this is, I don't have time to go into much of this as I should, but think this is huge. This is like home life question type stuff right here. This, to us who are being saved, what looks foolish and weak, what looks absurd and ridiculous and countercultural, it is the power of God. To love like this isn't just a nice thing to do, it actually is the power of God in action. Guys, it is actually how we win. That's what the Bible's telling us. This kind of love is actually how we win. Jesus promises that this self-sacrificial enemy love will ultimately transform the world and be victorious in the end. Amen? The last thing, the last thing I want to point out about this pastor is that Jesus, just like any good teacher, he doesn't just teach it, he models it. And he models it throughout his whole life, but the clearest way that he models it is on the cross. He dies on the cross. You know, he told, I think it was Pilate, he told him he could have called down a legion of angels. He could have. He could have accepted Peter's defense of him. You know, when Peter pulled the sword, he could have been, you know what, Peter, you got a, you got a good, good idea there. Boys, draw the swords, right? Meat's back on the menu. Here we go, right? We're going to go with, he could have done all these things to avoid all this, but he chose to suffer unjustly and to put on display the love of God for his enemies. So we read this in 1 Peter. Good old Peter. He grows up, doesn't he, from that infamous moment in the garden. And he grows up and he says this, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. To this, this unjust suffering is talking about, you were called. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So the cross did something. The cross is something that God did for us, for sure. But one of the things he did for us is also to leave us a model that we're to emulate in how we love, in how we love, right? We, I know, I know we, want to, we want to think, uh, I, don't, I don't like this passage. I don't, maybe Peter was still, you know, still a little mistaken here, following his steps of suffering. Get thee behind me, Peter. Right? We, we, can we just keep saying that to Peter? But he, he means it, and he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. The, the idea that, well, Christ suffered, so I don't have to. That's a beautiful sentiment, but I don't find it in the Bible. What I find in Scripture is that Christ suffered, so I don't have to suffer the effects of sin, right? I don't have to pay the penalty of sin. But there's still, there's something here that, that is almost an honor. They said, now we get to walk into the glory of Christ. And he gave us a pattern to follow in how we love, how we love others. He goes on to say in verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, that's an interesting phrase right there, who him who just judges justly. Uh, it, Jesus didn't say what the Romans did to him was right or just or fair. So he's not saying what the Romans did, you know, wasn't that big a deal. He didn't just love enemies except 
When justice demanded, he'd strike out with a sword. Think about this. Peter tried to defend Jesus, and you know, no one on the planet, none of us in this room, would think that that was an unjust thing for Peter to do, right? We would all agree that what Peter was trying to do was justified violence. We'd be like, good guy, Peter, you know, way to, way to, have, those gut, way to have the guts to do that. And yet Jesus rebuked him. Jesus could have called legions of angels. Nobody would have said that was unjust. We would have said, yeah, that seems like the, the just, righteous thing to do in that point. He, he, he would have been justified calling down armies of angels and crushing his opponents because what they were doing was unjust. There's no doubt. And yet Jesus chose to suffer instead of defending himself. And the reason is because only by responding in this way uh, did he, was he able to put on display that enemy-embracing, nonviolent love, that self-sacrificial, indiscriminate love that characterizes God. This is the character of God. This is the character of our Father. It's the love that ultimately wins the day, and it changes the hearts of broken people in a way that retribution never can. That's, that's something we often skip right over, is the fact that this is the love that actually changes the hearts. It wins over our enemies in a way that retribution, or just winning the battle and saying, ha that doesn't win anybody's heart, right? But love actually has long-term effects. We strike out with our sword thinking we're standing up for godly principles. And all we're doing is playing into the devil's hands. It's why Jesus in that moment called him Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. We effectively, when we do that, when we strike out with a sword, thinking we're, we're standing up for godly principles, so we're going uh, to attack, attack. Uh, we make ourselves unuseful for God to accomplish his greater purpose. He's got you in this world for a great purpose. We're here for a great purpose. And it just, it, and it stretches far farther than we can imagine to even our, even our, our local current events, right? We're here for a great purpose. And when we leap into the wrong battle, what happens is it's not the kingdom of God we're advancing, it's the kingdoms of this world. It is our own ego, it is our own self-righteousness that we're advancing. And it's Satan who laughs all the way to the bank. I'm convinced. Which brings us to, to something very important to understand. And that is, we are to love human beings we're to never treat them as an enemy. And, but Jesus is very clear that we do have an enemy, and that is the devil. Here's the problem. The devil doesn't fight fair, does he? The devil doesn't come right out and run out and out of the house and say, I'm the devil! Rah! I mean, that'd make it easy. We'd be like, in the name of Jesus, get out of here, right? Yay. Easy, easy battle. He doesn't fight. In fact, one of the devil's greatest tactics that we could probably find a good parallel for today is we see it in, um, you see it in like terrorist groups, some reports today, terrorist groups today or guerrilla warfare uh, historically. One of the, the infuriating, uh, just tragic tactics of groups like uh, ISIS, um, you know, from like 10 years ago is how they would force people to let them hide in their homes uh, from which to launch their attacks. They would go into private homes. And we see it even today, all the way from Syria to Gaza, how terrorists will they'll launch a, uh, attacks from 
uh, school buildings. They'll launch attacks from hospitals, you know, which just sounds like, oh, that's just so inhumane. But what they're doing, they're doing that. So any retaliation will hurt innocent people. The devil does the same thing. So we got to get this. The devil's doing the same thing. The biggest mistakes Christians can make is to fall for the deceptive tactics of our enemy who hides behind the people that Jesus loves, and he tricks us into making those people the objects of our warfare. See? And make no mistake, it's Satan that we're up against. It's Satan, right? Because when we step out of the dome over which God is king, we talked about kingdoms in that first week, a couple weeks ago. When we step out from under that dome, we're no longer trusting him as king. We not only step into a a human realm where, where humans are ruling, but we are also stepping into a huge dome over which God's arch enemy, Satan, is king. If it's not the kingdom of God, it's where Satan is ruling. And I know that sounds kind of extreme, sounds a little weird maybe to some folks, but stay tuned because it's exactly what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to show you. So when Jesus is in the wilderness, you remember when he was just starting his ministry, he goes into the wilderness, he fasts for like 40 days and he's really hungry and the devil shows up to tempt him. One of those temptations the devil shows it, uh, throws at him. Let's see if I can find here. I kind of lost my place. Here we go. There we go. In Luke chapter 4, yeah. Uh, the devil led him, it says, to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. This is so cool. Uh, in this moment, I believe, I believe that he's showing him all the kingdoms of the world, and that is throughout time. I think they're having, there's, a, there's a, a vision happening here. He's showing him all the kingdoms. I think that would include the ones today in the past, because at the time, there's really only one big, big daddy on the block, and that's the Romans, right? So he's showing him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says to him, the devil says to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor because it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered, it was written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So understands that this is kind of cool. Satan here claims to own all the authority and the splendor of the kingdoms of this world, to own all these kingdoms. And Jesus rejects this political power as a temptation of the enemy. Good on Jesus, way to go. He rejects all this, which is interesting because it's the very same power that so many Christians are clamoring to get. But notice this, Jesus rejects Satan's offer, but he doesn't dispute it. You ever notice that? You probably have. But he doesn't actually dispute that Satan has authority over all the kingdoms of this world. In fact, everything, if you look through these temptations that Satan says, everything he says in these temptations is in some degree, to some extent, they're true. It's just that he wants Jesus to apply these truths in the wrong way. And so the reality here is that Satan is the ruling, ruiner, reigning ruler over all of the kingdoms of the world. He's the CEO here of Empires Incorporated. That's Satan. Empires Incorporated, he's at the top. And if that sounds really extreme, that sounds like some kind of weird conspiracy theory, I, I'll just tell you this. It's not only in this passage. It, it, we find it throughout the New Testament. For instance, uh, I'll give you a little slice here. We see that J Jesus, three different times, he calls Satan this word, uh, the ruler of the world. It's this word archon, archon. Archon was a political term back in his day. It was a regular term for, for human rulers, but it referred to whoever's boss of a region. The archon was kind of like, you know, the little, the, he was like the gangster who owned the city. You know, he wasn't like president, but he owned the city. 
And the archon was this political term. He was the boss of the region. And so Jesus three times calls him the archon of the world. And he says it is Satan. Paul calls him the, uh, calls Satan the, the god of this age, the principality and power of air, the god of this age, principality and power of the air. The air in ancient uh, first century cosmology, when they talked about the air, that was the domain of authority that was closest to the earth right? This is the air here. And so, uh, it's Paul's way of saying, in the domain of authority that's on the earth, the reigning principality and power is Satan. He's the underruler, this sort of archon figure who's got the most power. And this would include all the kingdoms of the world. And then we find John, and this is wild, he says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And that would clearly include the nations of the earth. Satan is called the destroyer in the book of Revelation. He's the destroyer who deceives all the nations. It's why all the nations have these destructive tendencies, because they're basically ruled behind the scenes by the one who is the destroyer. Then we, we read other places. We read that earthly governments are part of Satan's kingdom, that they're all different versions of that. Uh, remember, you know, we said a couple weeks ago, it doesn't matter. There's not like a good, a good option when it comes to your king. It doesn't matter, really, if you got Saul or King David. They're both sinners, you know. They, they're both really screwed up. It doesn't really matter if you're talking about, you know, Cyrus or King whatever, Winston Churchill or Vladimir Putin or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or me, for that matter. Um, it doesn't matter. It's, it's fundamentally, it's all part of the fallen system, you see. It's the fallen system that has rejected God. God is king. And until, I have to remind myself of this, until, until we actually get to live in a kingdom that has Jesus Christ on the throne, right, that you can go to the capital and there's Jesus sitting on the throne, then the truth is we're still living under the puppet rule of the archon, Satan. In Revelation, Babylon is the symbol for the sort of political wing of Satan's empire. Babylon, it says, rules all the nations. And it says, deceives all the nations with her sorcery. That sorcery in the book of, of Revelation is the quest for power to impose your will on others. It's the quest for power to impose your will. It's the quest for coercive power, which is what the whole, you know, political machine is about in the end. It's baked into the very nature of the world's kingdoms. And never has this ever been more obvious than today. I mean, this is, we could read this and go, yeah, this makes a whole lot of sense, right? And folks, Satan is the CEO of the whole thing, the whole thing for now. Won't always be so, praise the Lord, amen? But for now, he is the, the principality and the power, the ruler, the demigod over these kingdoms of the world. And particularly, we're talking about their political systems, right? Political systems. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're from Nigeria or Mexico or Canada or America, wherever you're from, it's not wrong to love your country. Uh, I, I love my country. It is not wrong to feel just a, you know, a warmth for your culture and your heritage, your nation that you grew up in, that you immigrated to. I love America, and I'm glad to be an American. Believe me. I'm thankful for the freedoms that I have in this country. You know, freedoms, many of whom were, were fought by veterans just such as the guys and women who are in this room right now, right? The freedoms they protected I'm also grateful that I live in a land uh, where I actually have the liberty to speak out freely. 
to, to, you know, when my faith requires me to speak critically of my own society. Thank goodness we have that freedom. Not everybody does. And it doesn't stop them, but we have the freedom to. We can speak prophetic truth to power, and we should never be afraid. It's never, listen, guys, don't let anybody tell you it's unpatriotic to be a prophetic voice in the land that you live in. Amen? If you want to show love to your neighbors, sometimes that's the way we do it, right? We speak truth to power. It's okay to love your country, but never, 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 never forget, guys, that as, as truly kingdom people, if you're a kingdom person, you're a foreigner in an exile here. Your real citizenship is somewhere else. Amen. So, like we said last week, um, Tuesday, this Tuesday's election day. Many of you have already early voted. You get, if you haven't, election day is Tuesday, and it's good. It's good to vote your opinions. It's good to pray for your leaders. Um, it's good to seek to make our society as just and fair as possible for people who are oppressed, because there is real oppression going on. Speak against unjust laws, unjust systems. It's good uh, to speak up for the rights of others when you see folks uh, in this country suffering injustice, like our, our black brothers and sisters. When you see that, speak out. It's good to stand up. That's, that's Christ-like to stand up for that. That's part of speaking against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness. See, here's the difference between us, though, and just everybody else. We don't make the mistake, then, of seeing people as our enemy. Don't make the mistake of flipping over and seeing people as your enemy. As weird as that is, it's not weird for someone who's a kingdom person, who's being led, who wants to look like their father God. We recognize everyone even the people who, who disagree with you, practice this. Practice recognizing them as a fellow citizen, voicing a sincere opinion as to what's best, and take the time to listen. Take the time to learn from them, right? The Bible says love believes all things and hopes all things. So don't just assume the worst of people because they disagree with you. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And you know what? At the end of the day, if you can't come to any common ground with somebody, understand Understand this, that the real enemy is the one behind the scenes who deceives people. That is our enemy. And we're all susceptible to to deception. Am I right? So we can be humble about that while still standing against the devil and praying for our enemies, loving those that he has led astray. We can love them. Guys, we have no enemy but one. Just let that ring in your ears. We have no enemy but one. Simple as that. And when we put God's kingdom first and his righteousness, we put on display Jesus Christ and we help the lost of this world see Jesus for who he is, who is Jesus, the beautiful Savior. He is this beautiful, compelling lover of their soul that everyone is desperate for, whether they realize it or not. Amen. He is the answer to the cry of all of our heart. It is Jesus. It's not found in demonizing people who don't agree with us. It's not found in having the clever come back and roasted. It's not found in that. It's found in loving our enemies and thereby turning foes into family. That's how we turn them into family. So what this means for us, folks, at the very least, those of us who are in the kingdom of God, who are followers of Jesus, we should never put our trust, our hope, our allegiance in any version 
of Satan's machine. We should never, never, never mistake the devil's victims for the priceless image bearers of God, the men and women of unsurpassable worth that God loves so much, and never mistake them for the enemy hiding behind them. Never mistake people for the enemy hiding behind them. All of the categories that we want to pigeonhole each other into, and I know there's a lot. You can't hardly just turn on a the internet or a television or something like that without seeing somebody instantly sizing them up, right? You've put them in seven different categories as soon as you see somebody start talking. All those categories, Jesus shatters every single one of them. The cross of Christ shatters all those categories because he didn't pick and choose who he came from, came for. Boom. He's came for all of us. He came for all of us. Every category that divides one human being from another, they're all obliterated on the cross, amen? Because we are commanded. We're not just invited to. We are commanded to look at people a whole new way, to see people through the lens of a new creation, that one humanity that's created in Christ Jesus, to see people in the truth of what they really are, and that is people who Jesus came to save the people that Jesus came to announce the good news that they have unsurpassable worth because he paid an unsurpassable price. That is the truth. You're looking for truth. I don't know what to believe. Those are the, that is the truth right there. They have unsurpassable worth because he paid an unsurpassable price. Every single person that we come across. Let that be your opinion of them. Put everything else aside. Kingdom people, remember this, that you're his ambassadors. You're part of a kingdom that has an us, but no them. Our kingdom has a center. It's Jesus and no borders. It just keeps going all the way till the earth wraps around itself, right? It just keeps going and going and going and going. Amen? It has no human king, and therefore it has no human enemy. That's the kingdom we're a part of, and that's the kingdom we're called to manifest. That's why uh, Martin Luther King, I, I love what he said. He said that before his marches, the Reverend Martin Luther King, he said he would tell people, I don't want you to march unless you can say that you're marching, not just for your own freedom, but for the freedom of your oppressor, because they're in bondage too. Holy cow. He said, no, their bondage looks different than yours. They're benefiting from it, but it's bondage all the same. Amen. Amen. Until we are all free, none are free. Until all are free, none of us are free. This is why, now to, to bring this to a close, this is why Jesus is so brilliant, because he does something for us. He knows this enemy love is just going to be too difficult for us if it's just sort of left out into some pie-in-the-sky Coke commercial kind of thing. It's going to be too hard for us to wrap our heads around and really put it into practice, right? So Jesus is so brilliant, he made it practical. He gave us a discipline. He gave us a discipline to actually practice and make this real so that it begins to change us from the inside out. You ready for it? Here it is. He told you to pray for your enemies. Here's the practice to begin with. It'll start to change you from the inside out. Not just to tolerate them. Not just to think pleasant thoughts about them. Not even to pretend you agree with them, because that's not sincere. That's not what he told you to do. But to turn the command to love into action and pray for their good. Pray for their good. And this is being an authentic kingdom person, and it's how you participate in your own spiritual growth, every single one of us. Right now, I'm going to invite you, just think of the person that is hardest to love. It might be somebody you know, right? It might be like a friend or family member or neighbor or something like that. Hopefully it's nobody in this church. 
But think of the person. And more than likely, if, if I were to just make a bet, I bet it's somebody you've never met because it's a lot easier to hate people you've never met. Think of that person. Think of the person that's, ooh, it's hard to love them. Maybe you see them on the screen and you're like, mm. everything just sort of does that thing inside you. Mm-hmm. The person who represents the reprehensible. Think of that person and pray blessings on that person. Pray blessing on their, all their relationship, blessing on their family. You don't have to pray that they're going to win the election. That's fine. In fact, I encourage you not to do that. Number one, it's insincere. Number two, I think praying for someone to win an election is a little like going to Vegas and praying to win blackjack. Probably not the most kingdom prayer you could pray. But pray for them. Pray for their blessing. And I pray that whatever needs to be healed needs to be healed in them. Pray that whatever they're in bondage to that they get delivered from. Lord, deliver them. Turn this foe into family whatever their relationship with God is, if they have a relationship with God, and by the way, you don't get to make that call, pray that God will use this whole experience. If it's somebody like running for office, pray, Lord, use this whole experience and beyond this to draw them closer to you. Can you pray that for them? Can you pray it sincerely? And if you can't, it's okay. You know what you need to work on this week, okay? But don't be under the delusion that that's okay. It's not okay. As you're doing this, see what's happening. As you pray for what the Bible calls your enemies, as you pray for them, you're helping them. You're helping them because every single prayer, every blessing brings the kingdom a little more into their their world. It kingdomizes their life, right, because of your prayer. So you're doing a kingdom service there. But here's what you're also doing. You're also doing a service to yourself because this is the only way, I'm telling you guys, it's the only way to purge the toxicity of the atmosphere out of your soul. It's purging. It is. It's the only way to not get sucked in to the us versus them, good, evil, friend, enemy polarity of this this merry-go-round that we find ourselves on right now in our country. And by praying for this, by praying for this, you're going to keep your mind and your heart distinctly kingdom. You're going to find something else. I just promise you. As you start, it might be a discipline. You might be like, oh, God, I am not feeling this, but I'm going to pray it. And I'm, I promise you, as you start, love will grow because the Holy Spirit is coming alive inside of you. And you're doing what God wanted you to do all along. And you're acting more like God. You're acting more like Jesus, and it's actually going to be easier. And eventually, you know what you're going to find? You love this person. You're like, I can't even explain it. I love this person, right? You may never agree with them, but you love them. It's going to happen. It's going to happen because that's the kingdom. The kingdom is just infectious and it grows. It's so beautiful. And eventually you become something that God the Father looks down. He's going to look at his kid and go, hey, look at there. He looks like Jesus. She looks like Jesus. I like that. Amen. Would you just stand to your feet with me this morning? I'm going to close with a prayer that's kind of a sort of a, a, a benediction this morning, a little different you're welcome to bow your heads if you like to, or you can pray it. I'm going to put it on the screen. You can pray it along with me as it appears, whatever you like. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Friends, may we always remember that our one true King is Jesus Christ and that He alone is deserving of our complete allegiance. 
May we never forget that all our hope, confidence, and security about the future is to be anchored in the promise of the coming Christ and his victory and his reign and never in the whims of any government or, nor the outcome of any election. May we embrace our calling to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God, servants stationed in a foreign and often hostile land and entrusted with a holy assignment, which is to follow the example of Jesus by manifesting his love and the beauty of his kingdom to all people at all times. May we yield daily to the Holy Spirit who empowers us to love human beings without judgment, without distinction, without exception, without reservation, and without worry of its cost to us. And may we never forget that this kingdom we belong to has a center but no borders, it has gates that are never shut, has a king who is never cruel, and no enemy but one who has already been defeated. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Hallelujah. I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come forward at this time. If there's anything that you need prayer for, anything going on in your life, something in your body, you need healing, or maybe you need a financial miracle, or you need, you need just wisdom in these upcoming days and weeks. Lord, you just need wisdom, or you, maybe you need peace. Maybe this, is, this whole cycle has really just got you in stress and turmoil, and you need the peace of God. I encourage you to come down and let these good people pray with you. It's not the same when we pray in faith. Hallelujah. Come down. And uh, if you are a guest today, grace and peace be with you all. I hope you have a, the best week you've ever had. Go out and be kingdom people this week. Bye-bye.